Well, hello and welcome, everybody. Um, I'll introduce myself and the other speaker very briefly um, and then explain a little bit about what we're going to do in the time we've got. Um, I'm Louise Fawcett. I'm a fellow um, in politics and a lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Oxford. And my fellow speaker is Hugo Slim, who will be taking over for me in about 15 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes or so. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some general reflections on, on the Syrian war. Um, I'm just peering around the room to see if I can see any former PPE or master's students. Um, is it possible that anyone I once taught might have come back and want to listen to more? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they've just all stayed away thinking they've heard it all before. Um, but actually, you won't have heard it all before. Because we're talking about contemporary events, events on the ground, events that are moving so fast that we can hardly keep up with them. And of course, they have an immediacy and a dynamic of their own. But at the same time, a lot of this isn't new. Some of the dilemmas that the Syrian crisis poses for policymakers and for students of international relations like myself are hardly new ones. They're very old ones. And even a cursory review of recent history illustrates this. What are these dilemmas? These dilemmas, on the one hand, are about power. They're about the regional and international distribution of power. And for many scholars, this power and its distribution, this is the real currency, this is the real language of international politics. And who wins in Syria is going to make a critical difference to both the regional and international balance of power. The defeat of Assad will empower the Arab Sunnis, currently headed up by the Arab Gulf states. The survival of Assad will help to empower the Iranians and their regional allies in Lebanon and elsewhere. Either outcome, in turn, will both facilitate or complicate the positions of United States, Russia, but also provide opportunities for other states, like China or European states, to enter the fray. On the other hand, the dilemmas that the Syrian crisis now poses are about the appropriate response that states should make in face of civil war and immense human suffering. Then this is a topic that um, my colleague Hugo will be discussing a little later. And in what, in what follows in the next half an hour or so, we're going to divide up and speak for 10 or 15 minutes each on different aspects of the war and its implications. I'm going to say a bit about its origins, evolution, um, <coughs> And, 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 and its political implications, and Hugo will say, obviously, more about the humanitarian aspects. And then what we want to do after that is to open up the floor for what we hope will be a conversation rather than a simple question-and-answer session, and to encourage all of you to engage in a wider discussion about some of the issues um, that this current crisis has raised. So for my part, I just want to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking in um, quite general terms about some of the antecedents of the war, and then to reflect on its regional and international ramifications. How did we get where we are now, and where are we likely to go from here? These are two questions that particularly concern me. And as someone who started my life as a historian, I'm particularly interested in the how did we get here question. Social scientists, my colleagues, have become increasingly snooty about history. They think we don't need history to do good theory. I take a different view. 
I see history as absolutely essential to understanding contemporary world politics and events and international society. It provides, as one famous Italian historian said, a vital and compelling window on the present. And for those of you who are regional scholars, I'm sure you'll agree that nowhere is this observation about the salience of history more appropriate than in the Middle East. There are, of course, no easy answers to the questions I've, I've, I've been posing. When I agreed to um, talk about um, the Syrian war some months ago, the debate seemed somehow less immediate and less compelling than it does today. And in, in back in March or February, when I was asked to give this talk, um, I'd recently written a piece for um, the Chatham House Journal International Affairs on the 10-year anniversary of the Iraq War. Indeed, the whole issue was dedicated to analysing the state of the Middle East 10 years after the Iraqi invasion, a sort of anniversary issue. And in the article I wrote, I sought to analyse the Iraq War and its aftermath with the benefit of a decade of hindsight. And I offered some reflections um, about possible future wars in the light of the Iraq War and Arab Spring events. And I thought I could just revisit some of these past 10 years briefly today to offer some Iraq War lessons and, and, and also a cautionary note about the perils of possible interventions um, in 2013. Though much has changed since even I wrote this article, and even since August this year, last month, but when I reread what I wrote, I still found that much of it would be relevant and useful to today's discussion. I wrote then that an assessment of the fallout of the Iraq War in 2003 from three different perspectives, the domestic perspective, the regional perspective, and the international perspective, this assessment revealed a series of important changes that had centrally impacted on the political evolution and the international relations of the Middle East, though not, of course, in the manner expected by either its supporters or its critics. Remember, this was the war that was designed to achieve a good outcome from Iraq, a good outcome for the region. Iraq was going to be a model state that was going to assist the region to solve its problems. However, the war and its consequences soon became merged with the helter-skelter of developments surrounding the Arab, skin, Arab Spring uprisings, which had their antecedents in Lebanon's Cedar Revolution, Revolution and Iran's Green Movement, but Arab Spring uprisings starting in earnest at the end of 2010 with the Tunisian events, and events which spread quickly to other states, most notably Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, and Syria. The war, therefore, in some unexpected ways, contributed directly and indirectly, or at least provided the backdrop to these acceleration of popular demands, um, popular protests, demands for reform, the greater liberalisation of politics, and to huge shifts in the regional balance of power and international realignments. On the domestic front, long-standing, seemingly very comfortable authoritarian regimes Presidents for life, in the words of Roger Owen, an eminent scholar formerly from Oxford but now at Harvard. Presidents of life was the title of a book um, he wrote recently. These presidents for life across the region were challenged. <clears throat> but these challenges um, and liberalisation have been arrested by, complicated by authoritarian resistance, exacerbated by new or renewed sectarian divides, intervention by external powers, and nowhere is this more evident than in Syria. Democracy and dignity, these have been two big words of the Arab Spring um, uprisings, 
They've been repeated slogans around the region, but they still remain aspirational. And, and a recent issue of The uh, um, Economist, which I don't agree with, incidentally, says the Arab Spring, has the Arab Spring failed? I don't think it's failed. It's an ongoing process, but it's obviously facing huge challenges. From a regional perspective, Iran, like Syria in the first instance, was empowered by the demise of its old rival, Saddam Hussein. New pivotal states like Saudi Arabia and Turkey have surfaced um, in the region, with the former in particular emerging from the shadows as a major regional player. Indeed, Arab Spring events have further consolidated the position of the wealthy and relatively stable Arab Gulf states. Internationally, Western powers um, have had to review policy prescriptions and assumptions of regional predominance. Their appetite for war has been curbed by the costs of Iraq and by domestic and international opposition. The new regional order is uncertain and contested, and its international ramifications are huge. So taking this long view of the Iraq war and its 10th anniversary is, is important, and I think entirely relevant to understanding contemporary events, whether in Syria or elsewhere. And they help to highlight the multiple patterns of continuity as well as change. It's also particularly important given the continuing violence and bloodshed in Iraq itself. And we sometimes forget that 10 years after the Iraq war started and nearly two years since the final troops from the United States withdrew, levels of violence in Iraq remain extraordinarily high. Tens of Iraqis are dying weekly, if not daily. It was hard, it was hard to see then and it still is now, that any Syrian intervention could produce a different, or indeed a better outcome. So the debate may have moved on, but the cautionary note I sounded at the start has lost none of its relevance. Direct intervention in Syria has, of course, been actively contemplated on a number of occasions, but, interestingly, rejected in the light of sustained opposition of members of the UN Security Council, and also recently by domestic pressures both in the UK and in the United States. And these domestic pressures are an interesting departure from many recent histories of intervention and war, where leaders have not always felt obliged to concede or consult. They may not be a permanent feature of politics. They may be a reflection of lessons learned in the last war. And indeed, it's been shown that memories of previous wars and the experience of previous wars have a very important impact on um, <coughs> decisions, subsequent decisions um, about, about war. So people often talk about the Vietnam legacy, and now, of course, we're living through something that are called the Iraq legacy. So this tide of, 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 of caution could change, the tide could turn, the possibility of further intervention remains, and there are enormous pressures now on leaders to act or to restrain action. At the moment, the, the initiative regarding Syria lies with President Putin. And in their hesitation to act, Western leaders have perhaps inadvertently offered Russia the opportunity to re-emerge as an actor on the international stage in a manner that has rarely been seen since the Cold War. So Russia is now facing an opportunity to restore a great power image that it's been seeking to do, particularly under the presidency of Putin. So the mood nationally and internationally over intervention in Syria is quite a different one. And we saw this in Britain where our stock-taking exercise over going to war has facilitated a wider exercise 
in questioning um, the idea of direct intervention and opening this space for the Russian initiative to broker an agreement on the elimination um, of Syria's chemical weapons stockpiles. Whether or not this Russian initiative succeeds, um, this, of course, is not the end of the story. Syria's war is not only or even mostly about the use of chemical weapons. With or without chemical weapons, the war will go on, and is perilous and uncertain. Chemical weapons or not, the opportunity for international action will remain, and there'll be many regional players, both Arab and non-Arab, regional states who will alternatively try to back or prevent such action. And I'm not proposing to get into a debate now about the legality or otherwise of such action. Others have done so. But I do note here the increased importance of the legitimacy attached to the United Nations, and indeed to relevant regional institutions like the Arab League. We've heard more about an institution like the Arab League than we had before, who have played interesting roles in trying to at least have some input now into these regional crises. And Hugo will be talking in a minute about the consequences of inter international action at the level of humanitarian support, actions which, of course, are intimately linked to the politics and international dimensions uh, and uh, I've been discussing. So... Some people are saying that we've, this is Putin's moment. Putin has a grand strategy. Russia has a strategy which is outlined 2020, a vision for the future. Is what's going on in Syria part of that? Other people have spoken of Obama's lost moment, lost opportunities, of the loss of American leadership in the Middle East. I don't think in such absolute terms. I want to end my introductory comments just by referring to a very compelling article um, which was written by Simon Jenkins in The Guardian a couple of days ago in which he offered us a few salutary reminders about the Syrian situation. And some of these have really stuck, stuck with me in, over the last couple of days. The title of the article is, Putin can preen himself on Syria, but the pressure is intense. But this belies the important message, which is the byline of his piece. He writes that the job of humanity is to relieve the agony of the victims of war. It is not to help one side to win. And for me, it's impossible to see how any intervention in Syria will fail to assist that task. He also commented wryly how Syria is the war game of choice among strategists in London and Washington. How cynics and optimists debate the multiple questions that crowd onto the internationalist agenda, interventionist agenda. But strategists, he notes, rarely conduct an audit of the effects of war. And the argument resonates well with the cautious lobby today. The audit of the Iraqi intervention, as I've just suggested, is still being carried out. It's being carried out in Washington. It's being carried out in London, where we're still waiting for the results of the Chilcot inquiry. But Iraq body count, which records the death, civilian deaths of the war, now tells us that nearly or possibly 114,000 or 125,000 Iraqis have died by the summer of 2013. We also know that casualties in Syria have topped 100,000. Neither conflict has any obvious end in sight. It's true that the Iraq war secured the immediate goal of removing Saddam Hussein, but it did not create the model Iraqi state that US policymakers hoped for. It did not create a beacon of democracy and stability in a troubled region. A Syrian intervention could no doubt achieve the demise of Assad, and a possible weakening of the so-called Shia axis, which Western powers and Gulf Arabs fear. 
but with uncertain consequences for Syria, for the region and the wider world. So with the lessons of Iraq so close, so compelling, it will be well to resist the temptation to fight and allow the Putin initiative a chance. And this will allow the humanitarians to get on with their job in relieving human suffering. And that's what Hugo is now going to talk to us about. Hugo. Thank you. Louise, thank you very much for, for setting this bit up and for talking so clearly. I'm going to try and talk for about 10, um, 15 minutes as well. And I'm really just going to try and introduce us to the humanitarian impact, the, the suffering um, of the conflict, and the options that humanitarian agencies have. And they're, they're not good ones. Every war is really hard for humanitarian agencies because people don't want you there most of the time, the powers that be. But this one has some specific dynamics which we'll look at. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is patterns of suffering, patterns of survival, how people actually survive in, in the Syrian emergency at the moment, patterns of aid, the kinds of aid that people are trying to use to help them and reach them, and then some critical issues. I'm going to PowerPoint, I'm afraid, because A, because it's so lovely to be in a place which has such great kit, which is not <laughs> what I'm usually in, so um, I've even got a silver thingy. Um, <laughs> Syria, 22 million people, okay, so it's actually quite a big state in that area. Five main groups and five neighbours. And as we'll see, the groups and the neighbours um, are important. So here's Syrian society in a sort of cliched um, series of boxes. 12.5% Alawite, which is Assad, obviously, and, and a little bit of extra Shia. The big um, majority of people, Sunni, 9.3% Christian, 3% Kurd, and 3.2% Druze. That's our sort of, it probably doesn't even equal 100, but don't check. Um, it doesn't, there we are, exactly. <laughs> I was sort of gleaning it from different places, because there are other little groups. Um, so that's it, and this is how it's, it's sort of formed. So if you look at the Alawites as the red, they cluster around um, the, the western part. You've got um, Kurds who are purple around the top with... with um, Turkey, and then Christian yellow pockets in different places, and of course Aleppo there, and um, the, the great majority Sunni. So that's the, the general shape of things. The shape of the war, um, and this was the end of August, um, and if red is anti-Assad rebel groups, and as we'll see, there are lots of different kinds of those, um, Kurdish militias fringing the Turkish border, um, and then divided places, and of course the divided places like Aleppo are the ones we hear a lot about at the moment, and Huns, and uh, not anymore, but where, where the fight is very fierce, and that has real implications for civilians, obviously. So that's the, the shape of the war. Suffering in numbers, um, the UN are talking at the moment of 6.8 million people desperately affected and therefore in need of urgent assistance. Of these, 4.25 million are internally displaced. That means they are in displaced and destitute within the borders of Syria. That's a very, very big proportion of a population of, four, of 22 million. Okay. Um, there are 2 million refugees now. It just topped 2 million in the last um, few weeks. And they are spread between Lebanon, who has 742,000, um, Jordan, with over half a million, Turkey, with nearly half a million, and Iraq, um, with 183. Now, what I want to point out at this point, I can't get my little red thing to work, is that 
Lebanon is a very small state, and that 749,000 is 22% of the Lebanese population. And that's arrived in the last year. Imagine that in Britain. I mean, that is an extraordinary um, percentage of a population that suddenly arrived. And that means, just to give you an example, because the Lebanese, as we'll see later, are being incredibly hospitable, school numbers have doubled in the last two, three months in most primary schools and secondary schools in Lebanon. They've just doubled. Okay, because they've taken in, in refugee communities. Jordan, that's 14% of the Jordanian population. And, of course, Turkey and Iraq are bigger, so that's more, it's a less and more diluted sum. So how are people suffering <coughs> in this war? Direct deaths, I mean, Louise rightly mentioned that, you know, 1,000 people died in Iraq in July. Since um, a certain point in 2012, 5,000 people a month have been dying from direct violent action. Now, that is quite rare in a war. You may think it's not. But in many wars in, in recent years, particularly in African wars, people don't die directly from bullets. They tend to direct from, they die from war, not in it. They die from starvation, disease, poverty. So, for example, the shocking figure of the Somali famine, which was really a war in 2011, 250,000 people died in three months. They weren't shot, killed. They died of hunger from the war. Um, but here, we're in a situation where people are dying largely from aerial bombardment and artillery bombardment. Okay. So you've seen a lot of pictures, but that means you kill people, and it means people have no houses. So the next thing, of course, that happens is you have destitution. You literally have no house. You're pulling things out of the rubble and trying to find somewhere to be. And that's the 4.25 million people who are IDPs and the 2 million refugees. Siege is a phenomenal characteristic of this war, which it wouldn't necessarily be in the African civil wars, which are much more mobile, where people actually avoid fighting each other um, and just raid and leave. This is full-on, almost World War I-type siege, 19th century siege. And that means if you don't get out, you're blocked in. And whether it's the anti-Assad people or the Assad government, both sides are blockading civilian communities once they are around a place. <coughs> So several pockets of thousands and thousands of people are literally under siege in a very old-fashioned way. I mean, as we did see in the Balkans War in Bosnia. I'm afraid, as usual in these wars, there's a lot of summary execution and massacre on both sides, um, obviously by Assad fighters. But as we've seen, the jihadists in particular moving up into different places, and you've seen some horrible sights and stories in the news, they're doing summary execution to take control, which is part of the way they operate always, and they're massacring um, when they can, basically. Detention, torture, disappearance, and rape is a huge feature of this war, as it is in many, but um, this is largely, in volume terms, the Assad side again. There have been thousands and thousands of disappearances um, where people literally have no idea, and it's usually men, where their husbands, brothers, you know, young sons have, have gone. And there's massive um, detention areas in many areas. Um, and all of them are reporting very extreme forms of torture and extreme conditions, just living there with the numbers of people. Medical facilities are being targeted. That is another interesting feature of this war. I mean, it's a terrible feature. But there, there's, no, there's no doubt that, as you've seen, they're being targeted. They're being shot at and plucked out. Another, of course, thing, because this is a largely urban war, power cuts, water shortages, and just sheer levels of rubbish are a feature of what makes life so difficult as well. 
And all this, of course, leads to impoverishment. And I realize that I'm just sitting next to a psychiatrist here. I've outed you now. Um, and I should have put, of course, the psychosocial. That, that all this, when this happens to you, to me, we feel it. And when we lose things and people, we feel it. So, of course, there's that whole area, too. This is another thing I wanted to put on the table, um, because there are estimating now UNICEF and others that two million children have now dropped out of school in, in the last few months, you know, permanently. Now, that, again, in a population of 22 million, that's a stunningly big figure. And this is a Jesuit refugee service attempt in Homs to set up um, impromptu improvised schooling in, in, a, in a big building. Um, and, of course, that serves more, re more, more purposes for children than just education. It's about building safety and morale and, and all sorts of um, other value. So how are people surviving? That's one way. You flee. And, you know, in, in human experience, that's always been a really sensible thing to do. And this is Iraq. This is Kurds, um, Syrian Kurds, moving en masse at the end of last year into Iraqi Kurdistan. And that's a huge thing to handle as a humanitarian organization or a government when you get that kind of group um, with very little stuff with them. It's an urban crisis, this largely. There are rural areas. There have been farms and things burnt and pillaged. And, but largely, these are urban communities being displaced or seeking refuge in other urban communities. So that is a classic site in Syria these days where you get people who have had their houses bombed trying to flee to a safer quartier or area of a place and becoming IDPs in cities, I mean, as they would in Oxford. The other phenomenal pattern of survival in this emergency, and it's really interesting in humanitarian terms, is host families, because actually the frontline humanitarians in this emergency have been other families, whether they're in Syria or in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, whatever. The whole phenomenon of, of turning up and being hosted by a family. So this is a little boy standing in a hut that's, that is actually plywood, just very simple sheets of plywood that's been knocked together in the garden of another person's house and, you know, with a heater in it, and that is now their home. So the host family thing is really extraordinary, and, you know, we shouldn't um, underestimate the extraordinary acts of kindness and humanity that are being played out day by day um, in these other countries. But people are also having to seek shelter in great public spaces. A lot of schools in Syria can't be used because they are shelters now. This is actually a new building in Sidon University that was being built in Lebanon. And it just got sort of rushed by refugees who just had nowhere else to go. And they've just you know, botched it up with plastic. And there are people living all over this building site now. And that's one of many places. Um, but the other one, of course, is the conventional and ghastly, if you hate camping as much as I do, IDP camp, and they are, you know, they're really hard places to live, and I put a muddy one up, because when it's really awful is when it rains, and it does rain and get very cold in the Middle, Middle East. Um, the other things people are doing, of course, as you and I would do, is they're spending their savings, they're liquidating their assets, they're selling their gold, they're selling, you know, they're selling everything, as you do in every emergency. Um, so you're selling your future to stay alive today. And they're relying on social networks, as we've discovered, trying to find a cousin in Lebanon or, or, or whatever, or a person you did business with or a person you knew. They are finding jobs in host countries, so a lot of refugees are finding a way of running an informal business, selling things, or actually getting employed in Lebanon, Jordan, and other places. But it's not for everybody. And aid is playing a part, both local, because a lot of local NGOs have sprung up, and 
international NGOs, the big names that we know. People are also using mixed strategies of going to and fro. So you might bring some of your family into Lebanon and try and set them up in a Lebanese school and a Lebanese refugee registration. And you might move to and fro back to your business, back to see if you can um, restart opportunities in Syria as the fighting changes. Patterns of aid. Another striking thing about the Syrian war is that it is representative of this new trend among strong authoritarian states to reject the international aid system. So like the Sri Lankans, like um, the, the Sudanese in particular, the Syrians said, no, we are not going to be invaded by this Western liberal circus that comes and takes over our country. And they, from the very beginning, refused to register Oxfam, Save the Children, Care, International Rescue, all the big names, and said, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent will be doing this, and it will do it with the UN and the International Red Cross. We don't want anybody else. And I must say, you know, you have a certain sense of sympathy with it at one level, but it's been a huge problem in volume terms. Um, but it's meant that all the usual agencies you would expect to find in a place and an emergency of this scale, most of them are not there. They have not been allowed to register by Damascus. They've been very actively kept out. So it's mainly a Red Crescent and UN response, and it's all led by SARC. You may have heard this name on the radio and, and TV, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent. And Assad has said, these guys are our Red Crescent. They will lead this response, and everybody has to work with them. So that's how it's been structured. And in terms of what type of assistance, um, again, this emergency is like others. It's now using cash much, much more. So a lot of agencies, I think this is either CARE or UNHCR, are basically saying we're going to distribute cash. A, because it's really easy to move cash from A to B. And B, because if there's enough market and if there are enough traders and people bringing stuff in, then you get a double win because you allow people to have cash and have their own discretion for what they use things for, what they buy, and you build a market. But also, there is the need for hard, heavy, large volume commodities of food, medical aid, educational kit, reconstruction of destroyed buildings and shelter. So that is a very problematic challenge, um, as we'll see when aid is so restricted. So the big question is humanitarian access. How do you get aid into fighting areas? And there are two main ways emerging in Syria. The first is cross-line. So that is the agencies like the Red Cross and the UN and a couple more who are registered by Assad in Damascus and work with SARC. And they are trying to get across the lines of conflict. So they are trying to not just work in areas that Assad controls or reclaims and therefore not reach everybody. They are trying to deliver aid cross-line with the blessing of Damascus. And that is very hard. It's leading to constant negotiation. It's not working as well as it should be. It's leading to real problems of coverage, but that is one approach. But of course, the other is, and particularly if you're Save the Children, Oxfam, many others who are not allowed to engage, Médecins Sans Frontières, agencies want to go cross-border. So they want to do it from Leb Lebanon, from Turkey, from Jordan. They want to, in a sense, and in international law terms, sort of invade Syria with humanitarian action. And this is very problematic legally, and it's very problematic um, politically and practically. It's legally problematic because in the Geneva Conventions, um, a state must usually consent to humanitarian action in its territory. Otherwise, it counts as interference or whatever. But it cannot 
refuse humanitarian aid for invalid and arbitrary reasons. Okay? So it can't refuse aid just so that it hopes its enemy population dies and is weakened. It has to have valid reasons that they're not a real aid agency, that they're not being neutral, they're not being impartial, they're bringing arms with their food or whatever. And a lot of agencies, and particularly the UN, unfortunately, has found itself completely paralyzed about the cross-border operation. And it hasn't had the guts to sort of go out and say, we want to deliver cross-border. We think under international law we can do this. Um, we don't need state consent all the time because some of the areas are controlled by other parties. It hasn't taken that stand because, of course, it's frightened that it'll be kicked out in Damascus. So it's been a, a very problematic area. And a lot of the diplomatic effort before the chemical weapons thing was about trying to negotiate cross-border. The other problem with cross-border is that the Syrian opposition is hugely dispersed, politically diverse, very uneven in organizational quality. So there's no really effective partner. Humanitarian agencies have done cross-border operations many times in their history, in Biafra, in Ethiopia, etc. They've always had on the other side, a very organized, usually single partner, a rebel group, a liberation front, who has a humanitarian wing that they can work with. It's been really difficult to find the right party in Syria. So critical issues, just to end, cross-line and cross-border access. This will run, we hope, that with a new international consensus, and if, as I hope, Louise is right, and we don't get a massive armed intervention from um, America and others, then we can focus on humanitarian access and get both these going effectively. Aid volumes as well. We've got to find ways of getting more stuff in, particularly <coughs> if um, people are going to remain homeless for so long. The other key issue is how can we, as a humanitarian community, remain very impartial and neutral when it might mean working with Assad, which is the Assad regime, or working with new jihadi groups who are applying very particular kind of approaches to the way they govern territory. Um, and of course, the big question for humanitarian action is, is there going to be continuing violence? Because that's what's driving the suffering and destitution. Can we stop the fight? In which case, humanitarian access and operations will become easier. And the other big question is host society resilience. So how much longer can Lebanese families go on supporting, being hospitable? How much longer can Lebanese schools go on growing and growing? The same in Jordan. Um, are we going to see a knock-on impoverishing and destructive effects in these societies because of the massive extra volumes they're taking? And might there be a backlash or, or whatever? And finally, winter because the next big thing in the next few months is winter, when things get very difficult. So that's, I hope, a brief overview, um, and maybe we can have questions now. <laughs>